I've now come to that place, episode 39 of the quest, meeting Jesus on the road. I've now come to that place where I can attempt to say why it is that I believe in Christ. The English word belief and faith, as nearly every professing Christian knows, comes from the Greek word pistis, a simple word with multiple meanings. First, pistis means belief in the sense of mental assent or agreement, acceptance of a claim as true. So the philosopher Keith Ward says the first and most basic decision we must make is whether we think that the nature of reality is material, uh, whether the universe is controlled by fixed physical laws and blind chance, or whether we believe ultimate reality is something more akin to consciousness or mind or intelligence. The first philosophical question I must answer, Ward is saying, is which of these two claims do I believe to be true? Is the ultimate reality material or spiritual? Pistis then means much the same thing we mean when we say we believe H2O constitutes water. This same original Greek word, pistis, is translated into our English language Bible as both the word belief and faith. Belief emphasizes, um, when the word's translated that way, uh, emphasizes more of the intellectual aspect of pistis, while faith stresses more its qualities of trust and confidence. A firm belief in the reliability, truthfulness, or ability of something or someone. So, if a translator thinks the context of a text, uh, of a biblical text, is emphasizing more of the intellectual side of the equation, they use the word belief. And if they think trust is being emphasized more, they would translate it as uh, pastis, as faith. I think steps two and and three of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, state and illustrate the matter beautifully. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. There's belief or faith as the intellectual acceptance of a proposition or, or claim. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God, and there's faith or belief as confidence and trust. Pistis also has a kind of power or energy to it. It has a, a living, a dynamic quality to it. It's not by accident that the famous German theologian Paul Tillich named his book on faith, The Dynamics of Faith. What has often been pointed out by scripture scholars and Christian theologians is that biblical faith is really less about what a person believes or thinks to be true and more about his or her response to God.
A fascinating feature of the Christian creeds is that the Latin term credo itself, usually translated as I believe, literally means something like I give my heart to. Uh, it's, it's an expression of profound commitment. It is responding from the heart. So when I say that, that I believe, I mean something far beyond, be beyond belief in its conventional sense. I mean, I give my heart to and trust in something or someone. To begin with, then, I believe in Christ because I believe in God. I'm sure it works differently for other people. There's, I doubt that there's a prescribed order for how things must go. But for me, I believe in Christ because I believe in God. When I say I believe in God, I mean the God of the Bible, who is revealed to Moses and to the Hebrew people as Yahweh, as I am that I am. I don't see any need, uh, given the first 14 of these reflections dealing um, with uh, how do we know what we know and then the mystery we call God, for anything uh, for anything more than to say, I believe in Jesus because I believe in the one Jesus called and taught his disciples to call Abba Father. Next, I would say my trust in Christ, my belief in Christ is related to the confidence I have in the basic reliability of the Bible. I say in the Bible's basic or essential reliability because I'm, I am far from believing that there are no errors, nothing anywhere amiss in Scripture, no difficulties. I, I simply do not accept the notion that the Bible is inerrant or that the oral tradition which preceded the writing of the gospel was inerrant if we had it. Uh, neither do I believe that the Bible must be read like a bank statement, that is, either uh, correct and factual in absolutely every last detail, or the whole statement is false. For example, whether I believe Jesus literally turned water to wine doesn't matter whether in whether I entrust my heart my soul, my mind, my body, and my spirit to Christ matters supremely. In fact, well-known scholars like James Dunn in his Jesus, Paul, and the Gospels, or Samuel um, uh, uh, Byerskog, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, a spell B-Y-R-S-K-O-G, in his story as history and history as story, and William Farmer in the Gospel of Jesus have shown that it was acceptable practice for ancient historians in either passing on an oral tradition or uh, in the writing of a historical event uh, to exercise a good deal of literary freedom 
as long as they remain faithful to the core truth of events. They saw nothing problematic in uh, improving uh, uh, the wording of a speech someone gave or in reordering the sequence of events, points of uh, emphasis, or um, a certain amount of uh, providing a certain amount of augmentation or embellishment, as long as their telling or writing remained faithful to the core of what actually had happened. Uh, that's simply the way that they thought. So when I read the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee, I'm not particularly disturbed by the physical improbability of the event, nor do I feel an anxious need to rationally explain it. I think something astonishing likely happened that day. Something amazing happened that was a sign, a sign pointing to purity of heart pointing to the Eucharist and uh, pointing to a husband and wife becoming one, pointing to the joy of becoming one with Christ. Uh, it's all there to see for anyone with even a remedial knowledge of Scripture. But if I am wrong, if nothing at all happened that day, if there was no wedding in Cana of Galilee, it really doesn't much matter, because while the story enriches the narrative of Jesus, it is not essential to the story. Some biblical events are, of course, essential. And whether or not they ever took place matters, and matters greatly. If there was no Abraham and Sarah called to begin an arduous and, in that day, unimaginable journey that was both physical and spiritual, if, if there was no Moses commissioned by God to liberate both physically and spiritually the Hebrew slaves of Egypt, if there was no exodus, if there was no covenant people with their sages and prophets, if there was no Jesus anointed by God for the redemption and deliverance of the whole world, beginning with his own Jewish people. If there was no crucifixion, no resurrection, no ascension, then there is no Christianity. There may be a philosophy, a moral and ethical code, myths, fables, and legends with warm and gentle meanings, but there is no Christianity. So I repeat uh, once again this quotation from Thomas Cahill's The Gift of the Jews. They did their best, he says, of the authors of the Old Testament books. And we can say the same thing as true of the New Testament books. To be faithful to their tradition, even if one strand of their tradition occasionally contradicted another. But there is in these tales a kind of specificity, a concreteness of detail, a concern to get things right that convinces us that the writers had no doubts that each of the main events he chronicles happened, that God spoke to Abraham and told him to leave somewhere for the unknown, 
that God spoke to Moses and told him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt is the whole point. If the story of Cupid and Psyche or Beauty and the Beast never happened in real time, no one is a poor for that. But if Abraham and Moses never existed, says Cahill, or if they did not receive their commission from God, their stories have no point at all. Cahill goes on to say, We can read the Bible as a jumble of unrelated text, given a false and superficial unity by redactors. But this is to ignore not only the powerful emotional and spiritual effect that much of the Bible has on its readers, even readers who would rather not be so moved, but also its cumulative impact on whole societies. The Bible's great moments are hard to brush aside as merely human expressions with no relationship to the deepest meaning of our own individual lives. But each reader must decide if the voice that spoke to the patriarchs and prophets speaks to them. If it does, there is no question of needing proof any more than we require proof of anyone we believe in. For in the last analysis, one does not believe in God as one believes that Timbuktu or Andromeda exist. One believes in God as one believes in a friend. Or one believes nothing. So, in the sense that this whole business depends on faith in God, each person must be left to wrestle with his or her own doubts and beliefs. It should be clear from all that I said in my early podcast about multiple ways of knowing uh, that I agree completely with Cahill. But I also think that the more concrete evidence we have as interpreted by just everyday reason indicates the reliability of Scripture. The Exodus is one example of what I mean by by this. I don't find it any more difficult to believe Moses led a band of Hebrew slaves out of Egypt than I do to believe Harriet Tubman made 19 perilous trips from the south uh, into the south to lead 300 black slaves to freedom. I am also convinced that the explanation of any historical or of any historical or of any uh, space-time event requires a cause that is proportional to the effect. Uh, that seems to me to just to be common sense, it, uh, just common logic. Any answer to the question what cause the, dem the demise of the dinosaurs must propose a cause great enough to explain the enormity of their global mass extinction. Or if we ask, what caused the sudden and total obliteration of Pompeii, along with the other towns and cities in that region of southern Italy, 
burying Pompeii and its people suddenly under 19 feet of hot ash. We know without even thinking about it that the cause of the catastrophe must have been so massive as to stun the imagination, uh, like a volcanic eruption spewing superheated rocks and gases to a height of 21 miles, ejecting molten rock and hot ash at 1.5 million tons per second, releasing 100,000 times the energy of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The magnitude of an event must be explicable in proportion to its cause. Accordingly, Michael J. Langford, Langford, in his book Unblind Faith, writes this. First, there is the need to explain the very existence of Israel and of the church. When we look at the extraordinary history of the Jews with its incredible continuity despite thousands of years of wandering and persecutions, there is a strong case for saying that some dramatic set of group experiences forged this people. Similarly, the very existence of the early church demands some dramatic set of experiences that could forge the followers of a dead leader into the dynamic body that we find in history. Again, the core of the gospel story is utterly congruous with this. Although there are gaps in the archaeological and historical records, and while they often leave puzzling questions, my own personal studies have led me to conclude that while archaeology certainly does not provide irrefutable proof for the historical core of the Bible, it does tend to confirm it. Although some aspects of William Foxwell Albright's From the Stone Age to Christianity have been challenged, and although it is an older book, its basic conclusions, with some refinements, I think, remain intact. Uh, so I think um, uh, Albright's From the Stone Age to Christianity and K.A. Kitchens on the Reliability of the Old Testament, which is a much newer book published, uh, I guess, in 2003, are uh, good places to begin. Perhaps along with Larry Hurtado's The Earliest Christian Artifacts and James H. Charlesworth's Jesus and Archaeology, uh, when we think about uh, archaeology supporting uh, the essential reliability of the New Testament and the Old as well. I also think, as stated earlier, that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony and for the most part were written by eyewitnesses. No one knows for sure, of course, the, the exact um, date when anything was first written down about Jesus, uh, and, and whether it was even first written down after his death or something was written before he even died. But certainly his followers uh, shared their stories with one another uh, 
and uh, with others uh, very, very soon, uh, perhaps almost immediately, both orally and perhaps in writing, after his death. I believe that the Gospels, uh, that the written Gospels that we have today then, were originally collections of notes of what the eyewitnesses uh, were saying, and then put into bit put into book form. I believe that they uh, weren't written uh, uh, sequentially in long distances of time between the uh, between each one, but they were written closer uh, to something at least uh, approximating uh, uh, written in a parallel fashion. For me, and I realize that for those who have never had the experience, my words here will sound like nonsense. But when I read the Bible, it simply has for me what J.B. Phillips described as the ring of truth. Many times, while reading or thinking about Scripture, often suddenly and by surprise, I am captured, um, stunned by its deep realism. J.B. Phillips, 1906 to 1982, is probably best known today for his book, Your God is Too Small. Well, actually best known for his translation of the New Testament into, into modern English, a work he began sitting at night in an air raid shelter during the bombing of London. But Phillips was also an Anglican pastor and priest with a deep love and concern for the people of his curate, his parish. In 19th, and, and he translated the New Testament because he thought that during the Blitzkrieg, this would be um, a way that he could do something practical uh, to help the people of his parish, especially the young people. In 1967, he wrote a sort of memoir describing what he had experienced within himself in translating the New Testament and, and how it changed him. The title of that little book, written for men and women of simple faith who found themselves sometimes challenged by the assertions of modern theologians, was The Ring of Truth, A Translator's Testimony. In Ring of Truth, Phillips describes how working directly with the gospel text, uh, the Greek text, uh, into modern English transformed him, uh, how it impacted him. I must, he wrote, in common justice, confess here that for years I had viewed the Greek of the New Testament with a rather snobbish disdain. I had read the best of classical Greek, both at school and at Cambridge, for over ten years. Although I did my utmost to preserve an emotional detachment, I found again and again that the material under my hands was strangely alive. It, it spoke to my condition in the most uncanny way. I say uncanny for want of a better word, but it was a very strange experience to sense, not only occasionally, 
but almost continually the living quality of those rather strangely assorted books. To me, it is the more remarkable because I had no fundamentalist upbringing, and although as a, as a priest of the Anglican Church I had a great respect for Holy Scripture, this very close contact of several years of translation produced an effect of inspiration which I have never experienced in the remotest degree in any other work. At this point, I can pause and briefly summarize why I believe in Christ by saying, I believe and place my trust in Christ, first of all, because I believe in, have faith in God, and second, because I believe in the reliability and the truth of the Bible's historical core. I find that confidence in the scriptures strengthened and supported by the archaeological and historical evidence, by its ring of truth, by the character of the Gospels as eyewitness testimony, and by the uncanny way in which the same voice the men and women of Holy Scripture in both the Old and New Testaments heard speaking to them also speaks to me in the depth of my own existence. One of the medieval poets, a, um, in the convent, um, wrote um, these lines as best as I can recall them. The harpist plucks the string, and every soul touched in love must respond. That's why I believe in Jesus as the Christ. We'll continue this next time.